0: Boop 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 Podcast
1: of the Cinema, hosted by Dave White and Alonzo Duraldi.
0: Which one are you?
1: I'm Alonzo, you're Dave. Yeah. And uh, yes, good that we should point that out, because we might have some new listeners this week who are here, because we have a wonderful guest that we're kicking off the proceedings with today. Um, She is the film editor at The Wrap. She is the co-host of the Ticklish Business podcast, and most relevant to our discussion today, the author of the latest uh, book from TCM and Running Press, but have you read the book Fifty Two Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films? Please welcome Kristen Lopez.
2: Hello, thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, it's uh, our total pleasure. Um, so, tell us about this book. How how did it all? Uh, what was the impetus for it all?
2: Yeah, so I, it's not a it's not a fun story in the sense that like I, I woke up one day and I had this amazing idea. Um, I I had a coworker at my previous place of employment who had written two books for TCM and I asked him one day how do you do that because I figured there had to be some big convoluted process where you had to be you know like Roger Ebert essentially in order to get something with them and he said well do you want me to put you in touch with the publishing arm and I was like okay so I did a conversation with uh, the great John Malahy who runs the publishing arm at TCM and We talked for, you know, at least two hours about a bunch of different topics, none of which was this book. (laughs) And they called me back a couple weeks ago and said, well, we have a bunch of ideas that are already sold. We're just looking for a writer. And we know that you have a master's in English. So do you read a lot? She kind of laughed about, Uh, yes, as an English major, you you are kind of required to do that. Uh, And at the same time, uh, my, my degree had never really, quote unquote, paid off before. So they told me about this idea they had about film adaptations, and you know for me it was it was great because I am one of those people who is horrifically impatient, and I cannot wait the year or two years that it takes to uh that was me throwing something at my cat uh I can't wait the year or two years uh that it takes for me to wait for a movie to come out in some instances like if it has somebody that i that i I love like I will have to go buy the book and know. What happens to whoever is in it? Uh, So when they said, you know, we want to write a book about film adaptations, I was like, it was a perfect union of like, A, I have a degree, and B, I read way too much, and C, I'm really impatient, so I read a lot of, of books that are going to be adapted to films, and vice versa.
1: Well, look, not to give you a a lack of swelled head, but those TCM people will let anybody write a book because (laughs) I'm doing one. So clearly, you know, it's a it's a pretty open door policy. It it
2: really it really spoiled me for for, you know, the, the process, because at this point now, you know, I'm trying to conjure up an idea for a second book. And you know TCM has already said that what I what I'm interested in isn't in their wheelhouse, which is fine. But now, like selling, trying to sell a book to any publisher, oh yeah. uh, is oh, yeah. very difficult. Uh, so you know TCM. You seem really, really spoiled me with this first one. I was like, "But this isn't the process all the time. Why?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the book covers uh, fifty-two sort of you know literary works that have been turned into film. Is the idea that folks are going to read a book a week and then watch the movie over the course of a year, or?
2: <laughs> I wish I was that smart. Uh, <laughs> I they had said that they were looking for between you know forty to maybe a hundred books, and I knew that I had. I had a very reduced window in which to write. So I knew that I needed to have books that I knew really well, which thankfully, again, as an English major, you know, a lot of like the the classic literature that has become a film uh, is stuff that I read a lot in college and and really studied. Um, So I I went back and forth with TCM. They knew that they wanted a diversity of, of authors and genres and eras and directors, and so did I. Um, I also knew that I, I needed to be able to read stuff quickly. So I didn't pick a lot of like really long books. Like there's no Russian lit on this. Uh, You know, I think the, the longest books that I picked are, uh, the shining and Valley of the dolls. Um, I had a couple that were novellas that we had to, to get rid of because we wanted full length books. The only book TCM kind of lovingly said, could you include was Dune because that was the big, at the time we were writing, that was their big Warner Brothers release. Um, so eventually, yeah. I ju- we just kept going back and forth, you know, what what is accessible for an audience? Because some books are out of print, or they're really hard to find. And eventually, I, at a certain point, I just said, 52! I think I can handle that. Uh, so <laughs> it was not at all, like, at, at all time to, like, reading it for one a year. It was more just like, huh, I mean, I don't want to cut anything anymore, <laughs>
1: Well, and you know what? Very easily adaptable if they want to make a deck of cards out of this thing. So yes. I think very, very smart on your part. Now, of course, my first thought was when I first heard the the, the premise of this book, I was like, "Well, Valley of the Dolls better be in there." <laughs> and so I was, I was thrilled that it indeed it
0: was. And you are right; it is really long. It's like the Bible long. <laughs>
2: It really is. I was kind of thrown because the movie does not seem very long no. and it's one of many instances where the hollywoodization of the book really does give you a totally different viewpoint if you came at the book first. Yeah. So oh, yeah. like me, I love the movie. It's it's frothy, it's melodramatic, you know, it's ridiculous. It's overwrought, uh, and I think that's why a lot of people enjoy it, you know? There's this camp quality to it, right? Uh, And to read the book, Jacqueline Suzanne is very... Sure, there's a soapiness to the book, but it's very serious in the sense that, like, this is what women were experiencing. I I keep telling people, it's like the fictional version of, you know, Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, you know? The book ends... Spoiler alert for people who have not read the book, um, but the movie ends with the main girl, and going back home, right? And finding herself and, you know, leaving the, the rat race and the, the manipulation that she's a part of of Hollywood and going back home. And the book pretty much says, like, no, she's going to do what her mother did and her mother's mother did, which is marry a man that is cheating on her and be stuck with children that she doesn't really know if she wants and pop pills until she dies. Uh, and I was like, huh, that's not a real romantical ending for a Hollywood movie. I can see why they changed it. But I think I, it made me appreciate the book more because it really is a way in, you know, at the time it was being published for maybe people who hadn't read Feminine Mystique and didn't really want an academic, you know, look sure. at, at feminism. It, it does all that in a nice soapy package.
1: Yeah. When, when the book was new, Nora Ephron was a big defender of it. Not only is just sort of, you know, a page turner, but as, 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 saying something relevant about women's lives and about the expectations that are placed upon them. I've been saying for years that my, my dream is to have Todd Haynes do an adaptation of Valley of the Dolls that is as thorough as his Mildred Pierce was.
2: Ooh, yes. I support this.
1: <laughs> but yeah, but you're right, though. So many times, if you just know the movie, you're in for a real shock. Like, you know, imagine my horror in junior year of high school – um, where I I read uh, Wuthering Heights and realized there was a whole other half of the book to go after the <laughs> events of the movie were over.
2: Yeah, I love Wuthering Heights, the movie and the For book. Sure. The book is the book is what made me, I think, fall in love with literature, and the movie is one of many that helped me love classic film. And when I read the book first, and then I saw the movie afterwards, and yeah, when people explain to me what they don't like about the book. It's usually that second half because you have <laughs> characters that are way too similarly named. You know, oh, you have yeah. two Catherines, uh, you have a Hindley and a Harrington. you have an Earnshaw that's not the Earnshaw of their last name. <laughs> you know, there's all of these these really weird characters. Um, and it's yet like reading 100
1: time... Years of Solitude, you know.
2: <laughs> exactly. And yet at the same time, you know, I, I know why people love the, the 39 film, even though the tone of emily bronte's text is more like it's it's tragic but like these characters are horrible um you know i know they tried to do the book more faithfully what was it 92 with with the ray fines version and i didn't watch that movie all the way through because the minute i saw it's julia julia binoche i think is playing Catherine. the minute i saw her playing kathy which is the character's daughter and they just put a blonde wig on her i was like nope <laughs> I can't can't take this seriously. Uh it's why they just kind of stick. Uh I, my my version of Wuthering Heights I always tell people I like the PBS version that they did with Tom Hardy about oh, okay. a decade ago. Uh that one that one's pretty good, although I do not believe it comprises the full plot line. It's been a long time since I've seen it though. But Wuthering Heights is one of the, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Like they they had a they did an MTV movie version, a version yeah. in the the 90s that I I find very fun. Um, I remember somebody told me that they, back when like Seth Graham Smith was doing like the different versions of lit, like Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, that inspired a a wave of people to take old texts and then just add like sex scenes to make them like bodice rippers. Um, so somebody, I I picked up like Wuthering Heights, the sexy version and and they bold the sections that are new. So you don't have to read the whole book. And I was just reading them and I was like. You can really tell where the Bronte ends and whoever this person (laughs) is, because I think Bronte would have written sex a bit more like, I don't know, lyrically or like would have been far more interesting uh, than hearing about like the grinding that is happening right now.
1: Horny Heathcliff. I love Horny
2: Heathcliff. Heathcliff doesn't need, I mean, you don't need to, like, gild the lily, okay? It don't <laughs> <have> to, it's a half and a half. young women like me who are already, like, we already know he's a terrible human being, and yet we think we can fix him. Uh, you don't need to, like, make him horny on the moors. He already is.
0: <laughs> I love the Andrea Arnold version where yeah. she she focuses as much on, like, bugs and mud as she does <laughs> the characters. It's really wild, so. That's a great new adaptation.
1: I, and I need, I, there's a Buñuel one floating around out mm-hmm. there that I still need to watch.
2: Oh, I haven't seen that one. I, I know people, people like every now and then I'll get like emails from people or people send tweets about like, when are we getting Oscar Isaac playing Heathcliff? And I'm just <laughs> like, I support all of this, but I mean, if we never, as much as I love Wuthering Heights, if we never adapted it again, I would be okay. I would be, (laughs) it's like Jane Eyre, you know, like, you know, the, the 2011 version is about as good as we're ever going to get. We don't really need another one.
0: (laughs) I'll tell you which book surprised me in, in this book. Um, I'm so dumb that I didn't understand that Gentlemen Prefer Blondes had first been a book. I mean, I knew it had been a play. But I didn't know that it came from a book. And now I have to read this book because I love the film so much. Obviously, they're probably not going to be singing (laughs) in
2: the book. Yeah, no, no. I am really
0: fascinated by this novel now.
2: Yeah, it's it's really fun. It's it's not long either, which is which is great. You know, if you're looking for a nice like breezy read, um, Anita Luz wrote her book I think in uh, 1925. So it's a very much like a flapper novel, yeah. even though they adapted the the Howard Hawks film off of the musical that was adapted from the 25 novel. Yeah. And it's written in um, diary format. So it's it's Lorelai. We don't really know what her last name is. Um, but she is writing this diary of her adventures on a boat, on a train, uh, you know, all these different places with her friend Dorothy. And um, it's it's a really fun kind of send up of Hollywood. Like Luz is, is making fun of so many people she knew. Um, <laughs> she's based I think she based uh, Dorothy, uh, Dorothy Shaw off of uh, her friend uh, Constance Bennett. Uh, which is great, Uh, and there's a lot of differences to it, you know, the the feminist, the friendship angle is still present and accounted for, you know, there's some great one-liners where Lorelai talks about being surprised by Dorothy because Dorothy stands up for her, and women don't tend to do that, Um, you know, but at the same time, there's all these other plot machinations that go on, like, there's a heist. At some point, you know, the tiara ends up being part of this like heist that they're a part of. Right. Um, and I think my favorite element of it is that um, Henry, uh, Henry Spofford III, played by George Winslow in the movie The Little Boy, Child, um, yeah. yeah, is actually a grown man in the book, <laughs> based supposedly on Joseph Green. Um, who was kind of the person that started the Hayes Code. Oh, wow. And oh, wow. the ending is, is very different where Lorelai Lee ends up at the end, but it's, it's such a hilariously witty send-up that holds a lot more in common, ironically, with um, Red-Headed Woman, which Anita Luz wrote mm. the screenplay for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ending is very Red-Headed Woman uh, compared to something like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes.
0: Huh.
1: That's so cool. So as somebody who, who went into this project with a lot of you know, books uh, and movies under your belt, were there any discoveries along the way of uh, either literature and or adaptation that you would, were encountering for the first time?
2: Yeah, so I picked a couple things that I had on my to-read list that I had never either read or I had stuff on my to-watch list that I had never ever watched. So for me, the biggest one I think was Blade Runner. I'd never seen Blade Runner before. I'd seen Blade Runner 2049 and I hated it, and so I was like, oh, I'll just, I, I originally wanted to put We Can Remember It For You wholesale uh, as my Philip K. Dick entry, which which uh, is the adaptation of Total Recall, because I love Total Recall, the original, um, and it was a novella, we couldn't include it, so I said, well, I'll just, I'll cave and I'll do Blade, Blade Runner, which is based on the book of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and... The movie, I think, is really vaunted as this example of, like, sci-fi noir, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a wonderful movie. I was really surprised with how much I enjoyed it, I think, because I like the noir elements to it. And I'm also a fan of, uh, like, anytime I can talk about, like, Rekker Hauer and remind people that, like, if you like him in this, you should watch Lady Hawk because it's great, and he's really good in it. Um, but to read the book, too... You know, the novel is so, so dense, you know, in this concept of, like, looking for authenticity. Um, I can see why the script tries to create a story, like a very narrow story, but the book is just a fascinating exploration of, like, technology and how we find reality in a world where everything is, like, fake and about status, and it, it's aged very well, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was, I was happy to cross that off, Um, You know, in terms of, like, movies, at least, or or books where, you know, I kind of came at them with a a grander appreciation, I put Jaws on here, mostly because a lot of people don't know that Jaws is an adaptation. They assume that, like, Spielberg crafted this out of, you know, his head. Um, And when I was talking to people about it, they were like, well, Jaws is a horrible book. (laughs) <laughs> it's trash. Like, why would you include this? Especially after you told everybody you didn't want to include books that you didn't like. And I was like, well, I don't think it's trash. I think a lot of it is fueled by the fact that Spielberg's movie is so great, you know, that yeah. I, you can't compare it, you know, you it, nothing's going to be be great. Especially because so many people come to the movie first. You know, I don't know anybody that was like, I read Jaws when it before I saw the movie.
1: Um, <laughs> the Godfather is yes, the same thing.
2: The book is very out there. But I think that Ben book is more using the shark as a metaphor. You know, which is really fascinating. And he gets into the weeds about, like, class and economy and the mob and all these different topics mm-hmm. that... If if it's not good or bad, it's at least a very fascinating cultural artifact of an example of how, like, a creative can take a text and turn it into something that ends up outliving the text in a way.
1: Yeah, I gave Dave a copy of The Poseidon Adventure. (laughs) I
0: was just about to bring this up. For
1: Christmas a couple years ago, because that's one of his favorite movies. And uh, yeah, there was some surprise on his part about
0: things that didn't make it to the screen. Oh, it 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 is such a grim and brutal book that includes no people to like or root for. And by the end of it... When almost all of them are dead, you're thinking, you know what, you deserved it. It's really, <laughs> it's kind of insane. Uh, but you know, that was Paul Gallico and his <laughs> his whole his whole thing, man.
2: <laughs> I keep I keep saying if I ever get to do a second book, uh, you know, the the thing that I had, you know, first book, you know, you're afraid of like what you can say. You want more people. You want people to read it, so you don't want to like. So I didn't like go deep into like my opinions of like what I think is yeah. better. The book or the film, and I, I keep telling everybody, I'm like, well, if I get book two because like book one already happened, uh, you know, it's just going to be me like really giving my opinions on certain things and like trying to fight for movies or books that like nobody gives a crap about, but I have very strong opinions on. Them.
1: Did Did you come away from this with uh, I mean, not obviously there's ever hard and fast rules, but with sort of maybe guideposts for what works and what doesn't work in, in turning a, a novel into a movie.
2: Yeah. I, there's a quote that I use in the section about the thin man from W.S. Van Dyke who directed the thin man. And when he gave this, the book, the Dashiell Hammett book to uh, the the screenwriters for the first thin man, he said, use this as a foundation, not a guide. And I think that what makes an adaptation successful is following that adage that understanding the beats, what people remember from the book, and making sure that's included, and keeping the spirit of why people liked reading it and translating that. You know, I was fortunate to talk to uh, Richard Lagravinese recently, who oh. did Beautiful Creatures and the Bridges of Madison County, and I asked him a similar question, like, you know, what do you, what do you take away from doing adaptations? And he was like, well, it's tough, but, you know, you're having to please two totally disparate audiences. People that have read the book and that love the book, and people who have never heard of this book at all and just want to go see a good movie, and you can't please both comers at all. You know, you're gonna you're gonna err one of those groups. You know, it's it's a very rare feat to pull off making both sides happy. Um, and so, I think for me, it's you know, it's about making sure the spirit of the book is still there, the thrill that you get from watching or reading Jurassic Park should still be in watching Jurassic Park, and vice versa. The romance that you expect from Wuthering Heights, the book, is in Wuthering Heights, the movie. You know, if you're taking a a script and, you know, maybe turning it into, like, it's a dramatic text and you're turning it into a comedy, that might not work so well. You need to have the spirit and the feelings that are conjured up from the words uh, and translate that to film, which is very difficult. (laughs)
1: Uh, a friend of ours recently gave us a copy of the novel that 42nd Street is based on, uh, which has a lot of like queer characters and other stuff that just was not going to fly in the movie version. Uh, you, you mentioned the production code before. Are there any code era adaptations that you would love to see somebody tackle again so that they could be truer to the stuff in the book that you know would, would not have been permitted in Hollywood of the 30s and 40s?
2: Oh, it's tough. You know, I know that Mildred Pierce, they did the Todd, uh, Todd Haynes did his, you know, fantastic adaptation of of that and really was able to bring in a lot of the stuff that the code had left on on the cutting room floor. You know, for me, I mean, it would be something like The Thin Man, you know, The Thin Man has a lot of talk about drugs, you know, Um, there's there's infidelity There's, like, this extended discussion about a cannibal that Nick Charles knows. Um, But I think that I I really, not even the code stuff, but I would love to see a Thin Man adaptation with Nick Charles' actual origins. In the book, in Dashiell Hammett's text, Nick Charles is a Greek immigrant. His last name is, like, Chalambrides or something. Um, And part of what makes him an outsider in the novel is not the fact that he's a working you know, man who doesn't have a lot of money compared to his wife, it's the fact that he's a foreigner. And he's on the outside because people think that he's just like a dirty immigrant. Uh, And I would really love to see that showcase because the noir genre, and especially like the detective story is still even now in 2023, you know, something like Marlowe, we're still seeing white detectives. And we're, you know, white, white PIs, devil in a blue dress should have given us Far more, you know, noir stories about Easy Rollins, and it didn't. Uh, So I would love to see like a Thin Man where Nick is actually Greek would be would be fantastic. Um, That that's the one that immediately comes to mind. I know I'll think of like other things. I would also, I mean, we've had two versions of Psycho, which are the same version of Psycho, the film. Um, But I think it would be interesting to see Psycho looked at in a way too, because the book um, it's kind of like Carrie, you know, like the biggest issue I always have with adaptations of Carrie is that Carrie White is described as like heavy set and very unattractive and they always get like a hot girl and then they just like, like make her hair matted or something. Like it's just (laughs) really ridiculous. But in Psycho, the book, you know, the, the, uh, actual character is kind of like grossly unattractive, you know, just like a basic dude uh, who is not Anthony Perkins. You know, there's really nothing like lovable within him. Um, There's a huge like sexual undercurrent to everything. Like he's got like a scrapbook of like, you know, disturbing like sexualized images that he looks at and refers to. He's an alcoholic in the book as well. So I I think that there's a lot of ways in the book that that the film that Hitchcock does to, you know, make, make Norman Bates kind of this gentle character where you empathize with him and i think in maybe like our post true crime world i would love to see a version that's like you know what actually no why do we need to empathize norman bates like let's let's try to look at this in a way that is maybe a bit more faithful to the text
1: fascinating well listen uh the the book is out now wherever books are sold and i know you've got some uh some in-person events coming up you want to let people know about those
2: yeah, so my, my uh, I don't know when this is going to come out, so I don't know how... Uh,
1: in the next couple days.
2: Okay, um, so yeah, my, my book launch party is Wednesday, Ma- March 29th at the famous Larry Edmonds in Hollywood at 7. Uh, so you can come hang out and argue with me about adaptations and I will be <laughs> signing books. Um, I'll be at the TCM Classic Film Festival pre-festival party at the Hollywood Heritage Museum on March 12th, tentatively at 5 o'clock. Uh, uh, April 12th. April twelfth. Thank you. Uh, April twelfth, tentatively at five o'clock, um, and I will also be at the TCM Classic Film Festival over the weekend uh, for the screening of Beach Party. They will be having me do a signing uh, from about seven to eight before the movie starts, uh, and I hope that I get to meet Frankie Avalon while I'm over there. So yeah, come by oh, yeah. And, and say hi and tell me about an adaptation that you think is is garbage, and I will give. I have many opinions. Uh, yeah.
1: Wait, is Beach Party based on a book?
2: No, it's not, but it was when they in <laughs> uh, a book signing. <laughs>
1: Fair enough. We'll take it. <laughs> so listen, once again, the book is called But Have You Read the Book? 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films. Uh, Kristen, always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Okay, we're back home now. <laughs> yes,
0: we're back home We were okay. We never left home. We got on a plane and we (laughs) flew across town (laughs) to where Kristen lives. We interviewed her with our mics in our hand, like, like uh, uh, a chronicle of a summer. We're on the sidewalk. (laughs) That's a reference of people asking people if they're happy. Um, these are the listeners of Linoleum. Okay, a podcast of. Cinema, (laughs) and they know what Chronicle of a Summer is because we've talked about it, and that's that on that. Fine, they don't. They can Google it. Exactly. You could Google it, and then if you Google it, you could go watch Chronicle of a Summer. You should. It's amazing. Anyway, anyway, we were having a little Zoom chat with Kristen. Uh, She hadn't uh, seen any of the other films we're going to talk about today and we were like okay goodbye and she said okay goodbye i'm gonna go and um in fact it's the next day <laughs> oh, wow you're just giving away the whole store
1: <laughs> no veil of illusion It left. is the next
0: day i need people to understand how how production works
1: and it wasn't zoom it was remotely because audio is, zoom audio is
0: not great we were oh, try- is this, is we, this audio going to be amazing? Well, it's, it'll be better. The remote interviews on podcasts, ours, anyone else's, everybody else's, they all sound either kind of like this, kind Oh, of that's right. not true. Or they sound like brashly loud. Uh, it's just I, a, it is just—it is the function of the podcast world. I
1: have been doing Breakfast All Day and Max Film remotely for like two years uh-huh. now, and they sound fine. They sound. Like three years now. What am I saying?
0: They sound okay. Oh.
1: Uh, uh, Yes, unlike the Dolby Atmos audio experience
0: that we deliver on a weekly basis. I'm just (laughs) saying that... We didn't even have that excuse. We're in person. It's different when a person is in the room. Fine. Here with us. Um, But now that we're in the home, thank you for uh, chaining the door. I I don't even know why I did that. He brought down laundry and then brought up laundry. yes. And he chained the door behind him and i know why you did it you did it for me <laughs> you did it to protect me from the daytime killer i don't it's want it's the to, middle of the afternoon i don't on want to enable
1: your nonsense so i should not have done it I because it is the I middle of the thinking, afternoon on just a monday muscle memory
0: that means the daytime killer is a foot uh, yeah yeah
1: that's exactly what that means. anything
0: could happen in the daytime <laughs> with the daytime killer so I thank you for keeping me safe. I feel protected and I feel loved. You're an embarrassment. No no no. No no. You know what would be embarrassing? If one of us left the door unlocked and the daytime killer swooped in. <laughs> you know what happens when that happens? You've had it. Yeah. <laughs> what if he comes in with a queen snake? Double the double the the killing. <laughs> Let's do a show, shall we? This is the show. (laughs) We're doing the show. (laughs) I would like to make this show move at a pretty brisk pace, though. You could have fooled me. Because I'm very hungry. (laughs) And I need to dispense uh, authoritative criticism, Uh uh, which is what I always do. Oh, yeah. And then I need to eat something. I'm so hungry. You need an authoritative salad. Yes. Don't don't listen. I've I've done, I've, I've done nothing but salads <laughs> a really long time now, and I'm gonna have a lettuce wrapped cheeseburger Ooh. for dinner. Yeah, no, I'm bunless, y'all. Yes, I um. Well, everyone knows my my stupid situation. What if we discussed the film? that you saw and I did not see Mm -hmm. because it is the big movie of the weekend. Yes. It is three hours long. Yes. Which means I will have to wait for uh, streaming. Right. Me and my little arthritis hips. I mean, I'm going to the opera next month, Mm -hmm. which is going to be like two and a half hours, but Mm -hmm. there are also going to be, I think, two intermissions, Mm. which gives me an opportunity to stand up, move around, my 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 journey to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, my ability to move in that space and the seat that I'm getting, uh, is basically I'm going to be sitting in a big comfy chair, so not the same at the AMC uh, Grove, right? Which is you know they're fine, does but does I can't the, be in them for three hours.
1: Does the Amundsen have comfy seats like that or no? No. Okay.
0: They have. I mean, it's a it's a it's a contemporary space. Yeah. But the big the big comfy seats at the Dorothy Chandler. Right. Those are you don't get any of those at the. Of Humminson. another era. Yeah. You don't get those at the Humminson. All right. Fine. Um. So yeah. John Wick. Anyway, you're you saw John Wick. I, I cannot I cannot deal with a the movie theater seat for three hours for John Wick. I did. I will watch it soon. It'll stream within the next. Six to eight weeks.
1: Uh, I guess probably it's a big
0: hit. Big 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 hit. Yeah, it'll be fine.
1: Uh, So what do we got? John Wick.
0: What happens in John Wick IV? Oh, what doesn't happen? John Wick the fourth. Uh, Okay. How do they fill up three entire hours? Um, What's the story? uh,
1: Okay. Well. There's so much lore at this point. I know you you get fed up with lore in movies and you're like, I don't in remember. In movies like this? Yeah. Yes. Like I, I saw <laughs> the last one. I enjoyed it. I don't remember what just happened. Just don't care. I'm kind of Dave White on this. I saw the the first three and enjoyed them, but I don't remember the intricacies of what the high table is. And oh, I, I don't remember anything about the high table. Oh, they well, killed
0: his dog and he's been on a rampage for three movies. Yeah, well, we've, we've yeah.
1: moved way past the dog in the car All at right. this point. Anyway, uh, he wants back. He wants to not be an apostate anymore, or something. And okay. so he's the, the sure. high table and the thing right. and the stuff and the killing and the right. Uh, yeah, so it's just a lot of crazily elaborate fight sequences, which is what we all bought our ticket for. Yeah. And this one,
0: feels fights or guns,
1: both. Okay, both. All right, both because you've got like you know you've got. Uh, uh, Donnie Yen in this one. You've got Hiroyuki Sonata in this one. So there is some like hand-to-hand kind of stuff. But yes, of course, there are guns, guns, guns aplenty. And bulletproof suits so that you can shoot people more times before they go down. Um, They explain that everyone has a bulletproof suit? Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm not saying like what I can't believe the fight scenes in John Wick defy logical sense and are you know over the top because obviously that's been the point of these movies and that's it's what, been that way for a while yeah now. no that's what they've, they, they their bread and butter is, is we left reality quite a while ago. exactly yeah so when I say that the, the these fight scenes are numbingly lengthy and repetitive and stakes free because John Wick suffers all manner of Bodily, you know, destruction. Uh, yes, and and shrugs Things it off. Things that
0: would kill a, a regular person. Right. right.
1: I'm not saying it like I didn't see the first three movies, and I'm suddenly shocked that this is happening. <laughs> I know that's baked in. Even by the standards of the first three movies, yes. this one is too much. Okay, it's too much, and it's too cartoony. Like, it, you know, yes, fine. I, I get it. You shoot at him ten thousand times, and the bullets don't hit him. Whatever.
0: And no one ever aims for his head, because he doesn't not. have a bulletproof
1: head. Apparently right? not. Okay, but but the, t- the the damage that is done to like his spine
0: in this movie right, yeah, yeah from
1: yeah. falling off or down things. Right, it's like, come on, movie, like give me something here.
0: Like, what would you like it to give you? Uh, would you like it to be more in the world of reality, or would you like it to simply be less long?
1: Both, really? I, okay. Here's the thing. I would like it to follow the rules that it set down in the previous movies. Like I think we we have we have gone even beyond what would would fly in one and two and maybe three. I see. Got it. It's gotten ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> so I just found myself kind of numb and bored, frankly. Oh, really? This. Yeah. Okay. There are some spectacular. You know set pieces. Bill Skarsgård is a lot of fun as the bad guy here. This guy known as the Marquis, okay. who wears a lot of very bespoke suits created by Paco Delgado, that are like my favorite thing in the whole movie. Okay, the, the crazy suits that Bill Skarsgård wears. All right, um, but and there's also there's also a great outfit that. Um, that the, the uh, well, <laughs> to call her the female lead is to imply that she's in the movie a lot more than she actually is. But Rina Sawayama plays uh, a key character who has a great outfit change into something that's more kind of like from formal wear to battle gear that's pretty. Oh, well, okay. But, and, and, you know, on a craft level, obviously, the the cinematography is. Gorgeous, and, you know, takes you to all these different places, and there's this lengthy sequence involving, like, a sunrise at Notre Dame and stuff, you know. But it just... Um, it wore me down. And I'm a fan of the John Wick franchise up until yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: what I'm a fan of is choreography, and what I immediately latched onto in the first film, and what I loved about the first film, and, and the, the next two, is how... Meticulously choreographed everything. In. Well, yeah, these are all directed by stunt former stunt coordinators. Yeah, <laughs> but it's more than just stunt coordinating. It's it's it is, it is like a dance in, well, sure. in so much so many ways, and that has been throughout these first three films. Now I have not seen this one yet, so I don't know if that you know that that ballet tradition is continued. But it is for me. It has always been. Uh, you know, a, a a musical without music, a, a a dance with violence, and that is, if that's the. I'm case. I'm a reasonable person, so I like
1: that. <laughs> then this movie is the 1960s roadshow musical version of John Wick. Okay, <laughs> where it's a little too much and too right. bloated. I see. Uh, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna go with that metaphor. Yeah, I I just um, I, I you know it, it's hard to explain why I didn't like this movie without sounding like I didn't like any of them. I understand because I think people assume oh well we've already taken it for granted that none of this makes sense and none of it's realistic and that and it's like yeah but even by those that previously laid agreed upon way to tell this story, it's it's. So, he is so indestructible now that it's hard to get engaged with it.
2: Hmm.
0: And you're not going to do a spoiler?
1: I will not spoil. Okay.
0: Because I already know. Yeah. <laughs> and and I don't care. Um. You know, I, I'll i see it. Uh, in the comfort, On the sofa. In the comfort of my own home. Before or after as I'm recovering from hip surgery. You know, like... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. But I'm listening to you. Thank you. Holding space for you, Alonzo.
1: And by the way, RIP Lance Reddick, who is, you know, is as always great in this movie. And, you know, we recently lost him. It's very sad.
0: Now, uh, we have a letter. Mm-hmm. And normally we'd say, we would save these letters. We would save... All the letters for the end. But we have two letters today. And one of them is about John Wick. Mm -hmm. And it's from Shoddy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if Shoddy has seen the film or not. But she raises uh, some questions. Did it arrive before Friday? Uh, I think it arrived on Friday. Oh, Well, maybe she saw it. I don't know. So here's what she says. Okay, fine. Art is never to blame for violence. We need more mental health programs and a better school system, etc. But in our current and forever gun epidemic, are we supposed to pretend that the next school shooter will not have watched a John Wick movie? Well, this is Monday afternoon, and we had a school shooting today. Yep. Uh, In in Nashville. And, And I'm just so tired of it all. And I'm Within so tired. four miles
1: of where I went to college, I yeah. just found out.
0: I'm so tired of it all. Yeah. And we continue. Uh, I, I say we, our, our our political leaders continue to do nothing because they're worthless. Yeah. She continues. After Parkland and Uvalde and, you know, uh Today, and, uh, oh God, I'm forgetting the name of the the other elementary school now at the top of my head. Can we go to movies like this with just a bucket of popcorn? Would you be okay with a COVID zombie movie from a big Hollywood studio right now? Well, I mean, I just watched The Last of Us, so that is kind of a big COVID zombie movie. Mm -hmm. John Wick is not just another piece of popular entertainment like a Marvel movie. This is now an eight-hour-long pornographic worship of guns that are readily available to anyone on the internet, where usefulness of guns is never questioned. The NRA couldn't have made a better ad campaign. Thank you to Mr. Reeves's uncanny agelessness, John Wick movies now still skew much younger. Who is more guilty after the next school shooting, Keanu Reeves or Alex Jones? Alex Jones. Is this art or a bunch of millionaires laughing all the way to the bank, knowing that their children will be okay? And I don't know the answer. There will always be unstable people out there who are uninfluenced by any number of, you know, uh, what, the word is on the tip of my tongue. Uh, influenced, stimuli? Into, yeah, by various stimuli. But here's I mean I'm always on the side of the art is not to blame right that I mean that's that is if I don't believe that then I then I can't see or or take seriously or think seriously about any film that has you know objectionable content bad characters doing bad things right We are the country we are the big country where this keeps happening because we are the country where the guns are unregulated yeah at all they they and they they have been less and less regulated over time for a while there we were doing it, and then we pulled back and now we've gone mm-hmm. in reverse Tennessee in fact recently yes. uh passed permitless carry yes, so the and that's that is. Uh, political grandstanding—that is not a public public oh, safety—it's—it's measure worse. at all.
1: It's worse. The governor today, yeah, uh, or recently was just was crowing about the fact that Smith and Wesson is opening a manufacturing facility in Tennessee. Yes, yeah. So connect those dots.
0: But I'm thinking about it like this: John Wick, and what else? Taxi driver, and. You know, all the other violent, violent, violent films. A Clockwork Orange. A Clockwork Orange. Like every every John Woo movie. You know, they go. They're all. They're everywhere. They're all around the world. They're they're they're, they're in theaters in in every country. Video games around the world. Yeah, they're in theaters in countries where you can't get a gun like at all. You know, um, but you can get a gun here. I think it's the guns and I think it's our government. I don't I can't I can't I can't say it's the movies. It's the guns and it's our government that is actively allowing citizens in the United States to slaughter each other. If the movies go away,
1: the problem doesn't go away. If the guns go away, the movies don't make the problem.
0: Right. I think I think that's right. I think. So I, I understand the frustration. I feel it all the time, and I especially feel it today because it happened again today. But I, eh, I, and I don't know. I, I don't have an answer because I, because I vote, and I vote, and I vote, and I yell, and I yell, and I yell, and, I yell and, I, and I, it, everything just feels like a, an exercise in futility because we live in an unhinged country. Someone recently said, and I don't know where they, where I saw this, but they were like, "The way the U.S. looks at Florida is the way the world looks at the U.S."
1: Yeah, yeah. I I shared a Twitter thread today that was about not to take us too off topic here, but that 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 the gun culture in this country is so rooted in white supremacy. Yes. Because the only time that we ever saw serious gun control measures from the right was when the Black Panthers were armed. Suddenly, that's when Governor Ronald Reagan wanted to crack down on guns and who had them. Uh-huh. But beyond that, you know, it is this thing of people, you know, wanting to arm people because of the thing that scares them and what scares them, you know. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I think a lot of there's a lot of stuff that is terrible in this country that is all tied in together that manifests itself in this the stuff with the guns, and I put the John Wick movies
0: kind of low on that list. Okay. So it has come to my attention that three of the four films we're talking about this week are major uh, bummers. Dope. If we consider the John Wick film to be a bummer.
1: Uh, it was for me. I mean, yeah. other, your
0: your mileage may vary. It may be an exciting thrill ride for some of you, but right. uh, for you it was not uh, You know, an experience you want to revisit. It was enervating. Yeah. Should we next talk about the bummer that is a good person or the bummer that is Tori and Lokita? Uh, let's talk about Tori and Lokita since, you know. It's a good film. It's a good movie. It's a great movie. It's a good movie that uh, is a a nightmare and bleak yeah. and devastating. And there are no easier words, I guess, for it than that. But it is from uh, the Dardan Brothers. Mm-hmm. Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardin, mm-hmm. who've been around for quite a long time. They're in their 70s now. Belgian siblings making films. and um, Social realists. Social realism. Narrative, uh, for the most part. And almost always about marginalized people, outcasts, mis- mistreated People, immigrants, um, working class, working people. class people who are, you know, being crushed by the system they're in, and
1: they're the French Ken
0: Loach. They are, yeah, they are the champions of the least of these, to yeah. use a biblical expression, the downtrodden. Uh, and recently, they have really shifted their focus to stories of immigration. And and I don't just mean like, recently. Recently, I mean they've been they've been telling these kinds of stories for a while now. Uh, Lorna's Silence from the two thousands is about a woman, uh, uh, an immigrant to, to to Belgium, but the past like three or four of their movies have been thematically about immigration. This is really you know timely, in Europe because the the question of immigration is in such, you know, upheaval there right now. You've got countries that are accepting immigrants from, you know, war uh, uh, zones all over the the globe, the globe. Well, the, the mostly the global south. Yeah. And and then you've got countries like Poland and Hungary that are like, nope. Italy uh, will take everybody, uh, but the minute you wind up in Sweden, they're like, "Nope, you're back. You were sending you back to Italy." Yeah. So it's 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 a mess. This film is very specifically and most harrowingly about two children from do we do we learn Benin what? or Benin as they call it in French speaking African country? Yes. Uh, Two kids, a little boy named Tori played by newcomer uh, Pablo Schills and uh, an older teenage girl named Lokita played by Jolie Mbundu. They are posing as brother and sister, although they are not brother and sister. They met on the boat. They met on the boat. They were smuggled into Belgium. They are alone and they are... Living in a uh, a home for child immigrants who are unaccompanied, so Tory has his papers, yes, and he has them because he uh, had been placed in an orphanage for something known as sorcerer children, who yeah. children who were believed to be possessed by evil spirits. Yeah,
1: basically, I think if the mother dies in childbirth, they blame the child and say that the kid is a sorcerer, and they try to kill the kid, and so yeah. that's a
0: protected class of asylum. Yeah. So, uh, Lokita, however, does not have hers. Both of them are being... And here's where it gets rough, and I need to tell y'all, uh, if you're going to watch this movie... You're going to... Uh, you won't experience it firsthand. The camera never shows you what happens, but they are ruthlessly exploited by drug dealers. Um, uh, Lokita is uh, sexually abused by one of them. She is then placed in what is essentially slavery, in a an isolated like bunker where drugs are manufactured. A grow house. With the promise that she will get her fake counterfeit papers if she stays in this place, this windowless uh, place, for three months working for no money. She is so desperate to get these papers so that she can take care of Tory. Sorry. Uh, Yeah, so she can take care of Tory that she consents to this. And things just get worse. The stuff I just told you is what happens at the beginning. Of yeah, I was going to say, that's that's act one. It is worse and worse and worse and more and more bleak and frightening and tense. And the two of them
1: are devoted to each other and doing everything possible to take care of each other, to provide yep. for each other, to, to be the one sort of, you know, anchor in a,
0: in a Cruel, dizzying world. He's about 10, she's about 16. Yeah. And what you see in the film is all sorts of, you know, villainous behavior. Uh, And it's, again, it's directed toward these two kids. This inhumane treatment. Because the people who are treating them this way know that they are utterly powerless to do anything about it to protest it to report to um, report it you know because if, if Lokita reports what's happening she's going to be expelled from yeah. the country and and you know doomed in an entirely different way but what you also see and what I really appreciate about the Dardans is that they aren't dangling you know humans over a pit of outside forces, you know, you know, evil people, right, who are coming for them. These kids are also in a, in, 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 they're being brutalized by the state as well, because the hoops that Lokita has to jump through to get any sort of official state recognition are themselves cruel steps. They are, A kind of like grilling procedure where you know that they're not gonna do anything to help this child.
1: And they're also being oppressed from within their own community because the guy who smuggled them into Belgium in the first place is
0: himself an immigrant. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and is like, you know, shaking down Lokita for more money and, you know, making threats to her. And, and,
0: And 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 physically assaulting her as well. Yeah. This is a really tough movie. It is a tough sit, but and it, it's, it's... We watched it, and I, when it was over, I said, you know, you forget, in between Dardenne Brothers films, how tense and upsetting they can be. And I realized that this could feel like exploitation. But I also know their history as filmmakers. They are presenting an ethical situation yeah that is critiquing the government that they of their own country
1: yeah they're not they're not putting pins to their characters and watching them wriggle for the fun of it they're no. saying something about the world as it is right now and making us feel it all the more by
0: by experiencing it on a human level they also know the history of their own country which was a brutal colonizer of Africa uh, of of a couple of African countries, uh, the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and also Rwanda. Mm. Belgian colonies. I mean, you've read about the human zoo, right? In Belgium, I have not. Okay. Well, you could Google it.
1: Uh, maybe not on the day that I watched this movie.
0: Yeah, it ha- it's a thing that happened in Belgium where. They brought people from Congo, placed them in Belgium in mock African villages to live. And it was, it was, a, it was a zoo where Belgians could go and, and, and look and, and see. This really happened. There's now a museum there devoted to this hideous atrocity. Oh, so they
1: actually like talk about their they shameful did. past in a, they didn't in, in, for a long time in the hopes of not repeating yes. that in the future. What yes. a what a bold and revolutionary move. But it's still
0: happening in the ways that that immigrants are being treated. Yes. And it's happening in the United States as well. Yes. So, just because this is a Belgian film about people from uh, Benin doesn't mean that you know, yeah, you could go the, to we've got nothing to we to could go to our own southern this. border and make this move. We could go into our own city, yeah, and see b- remarkably similar things. yes, the United States uh, has become even worse than it's ever been uh, with regard to immigration, and it's being driven by right wing evangelical Christians who have decided that uh,
1: Things the, Jesus the, actually said. The, don't the, the
0: Bible either. is actually a backwards document. Mm-hmm. This thing that they claim to love so much—that yes. tells you to, you know, uh, 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 welcome the traveler, welcome, welcome the outsider, welcome the the stranger into yeah. your land. Uh, they've turned it into something utterly selfish and cruel. And that's what Republicans do. So sorry everybody who don't like to hear politics on this program, but that's life. <laughs> anyway. Um, the Dardan's intimacy with their characters, you know, the craft of what they're doing, the, yes. the filmmaking process itself, the the naturalistic, you know documentary like right up immediate in the space. Uh, in this film, claustrophobically so, because yeah. Lokita is stuck in an underground space. Uh, oh she, well before that and even well before that <laughs> yes exactly the the restaurant where, they're help, where they meet to you know just the opening scene where she's yeah.
1: being questioned by the unseen yeah. uh, immigration people and the camera's All just like it. Frederick Wisemaning right up in her face and like right. staying there and not cutting away
0: yeah. uh they know how to put you through the ringer this is a 90 minute movie watch it on a good day yeah when you can process it and think through it uh if you know the Dardan brothers films and you admire them as we do you uh you know you'll probably want to watch this yeah. because they're great filmmakers who have been giving you know uh giving to cinema ideas about how the world could be by showing you how it is and that's See it on a day where you can take a nice walk. It's tough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Anyway, good movie, extremely bleak. It made me think of, it made me think of Mouchette. And then later I read an article, an interview with them where they were like, oh yeah, we were thinking of Mouchette. (laughs) I was like, yeah, okay. Um, That's Brisson, y'all. You knew you couldn't get through an episode. (laughs)
1: Of so EO wasn't enough of a Brassange shout out for you. Here's another
0: one. Right. A good person. Yeah. Morgan Freeman says the title in the movie. He says, I'm a good person. Morgan Freeman says a lot. He really does. Morgan Freeman has an opening
1: monologue <laughs> about how he likes doing model trains because it makes you like God and you can make the world perfect the way that you wish it were. And it's like, We would have gotten that anyway, (laughs) writer Zach Braff. Writer-director Zach Braff. You didn't have to tell us that.
0: (laughs) Writer-director Zach Braff uh, has directed his latest film. It's called The Good Person, and it stars Florence Pugh and Morgan Freeman and Molly Shannon, and And am I missing anybody else?
1: uh, A young actress named Celeste O'Connor.
0: Yes. Um, Okay, so here's what it's about. Florence Pugh is having a really nice life. She's got a fiancé. They're going to get married. This is all the first five minutes, by the way. So this doesn't count as a spoiler. This is the inciting incident. It's also in the trailer. (laughs) Yes. She is on her way to look for wedding dresses with her future uh, sister-in-law and her future sister-in-law's husband. There's a terrible accident The sister-in-law and her husband are killed. Florence Pugh is badly injured and is in a lot of physical pain and over the course of the next year becomes addicted to OxyContin to the point where she withdraws from the world and lives at home with her mother, Molly Shannon, and becomes a desperate addict. She winds up in a meeting. There she meets Morgan Freeman, who is himself a recovering alcoholic well she has not she already she's met him before. She's met him before because he is the father of her uh fiance and of the woman that she killed, and of the woman who died in the car. Yes. In the course of the year of Florence Pew becoming an oxycontin addict she has uh, ended the engagement, ended the engagement with the fiance. Even though he was still willing to he was still Pulling for her, rooting for her, supporting yeah. her. The person he's not pulling for, rooting for, or supporting is his father, Morgan Freeman. Yes. So who was alcoholic and who abusive? Who was alcoholic and ab- physically abusive his, yeah, during his when, during his youth, childhood.
1: Um, Morgan Freeman is now so raising now, the daughter of the
0: couple that, yes. that yep. died in the accident. So we have a complicated series of interconnected people. I'm sorry, a complicated scenario full of interconnected people. And this is a film about grief and recovery and forgiveness and self-hate and reconciliation. And that's all fine and good. It is also overwritten Mm. and overwrought Over long. With a few nice performances. Florence Pugh, you know, when Mm -hmm. is she? She's become already at a young age. Was she 26, 27? Mm -hmm. The kind of actor that the movie's not good, but you kind of want to watch what she's doing. Yeah. And because while the filming was... uh, Going on, she and Zach Braff were a couple. So his camera can't get enough of her. He loves her. The camera loves her. It is up her nostrils quite often. She is and she
1: commands the space. Yeah. She's putting a series of like I'm a wreck sweatshirts that she nonetheless manages to turn into something very chic.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's true. You know. Uh it's one of those movies where she cuts her own hair and it looks really glamorous. Yeah, exactly, because she's, she's pulling it off anyway.
1: <laughs> I There are scenes here that really landed for me. Yes. Like there's a scene where she is she's day drinking in a bar and runs into two guys she went to high school with, played yep. by Alex Wolf and Brian Rojas. Yeah. And Basically, like, you know, is, is sort of trying to get drugs from them and they are not letting her off the hook easily because of obviously how far she's fallen in life if she's Aww. in this bar with them in the daytime. um, But the thing that bugs... Okay, two things that bug me the most about this movie. First of all, we've seen so many addiction recovery narratives at this point. Right. And unless you are making a woman under the influence or uh, you know if unless you're European and making it really you know like a, a a struggle and and it's not gonna have a sort of a foregone conclusion outcome right We kind of know these tropes we know this path we know where we're going here. we know she's gonna like you know, get a little better and then really crash hard and then finally go to recovery and she's going to have that first share at the meeting. And, you know, we we know, we know, we know. The other thing is that, you know, this movie starts out being about Florence Pugh, but Morgan Freeman becomes a major part of it. I mean, he's the co-lead, essentially, by the time we really get rolling here. And then...
0: I I would say yes. It's kind of more about her, really. Well, it is, but... He's in the mix. But, okay, yeah. but nonetheless... And a, he's the narrator. A, yes, he is, <laughs> Yeah. because
1: he's Morgan Freeman. A major thing happens to him that the movie should be paying more attention to and walking us through the aftermath of, and instead decides, eh, you know what, we're really... It's really more important that we watch... Florence Pugh, like, write essays in rehab. It's, yes. Morgan Freeman can deal with Morgan Freeman. He's, he's he'll be fine. You don't right. need to know. Right. And it's like, uh, no movie. You're violating the contract at this point. And, and it's, you've given us too much of him up until now to suddenly pull back when this big thing happens.
0: <sighs> Mr. Braff comes from a very mainstream tradition. He comes from sitcoms. He comes from wrapping it up. I've never seen Garden State. And there is a... Eh. That's why I never saw Garden State. (laughs) Garden State's fine. Um, There's a problem. There's a big problem. Here. Uh, and, and 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 he doesn't and Zach Graff doesn't see the big problem. You are you are presenting us with a hugely messy situation, you know. People who have spun out of control, people who are, you know, living with grief. That's not even a it's like a, a year old, this grief. Person living with guilt over their, you know, negligence in a in a horrific fatality situation. And there's a moment in the where where Morgan Freeman says, you know, every life doesn't wrap up very tidily. Life isn't tidy. It's not all, not like that all the time. And then the movie. Wraps up tidily, crosses every T, and tittles every I <laughs> and and basically like does that with its hands. By the end of the like ta-da. ta-da, yeah. And and I thought, but you just told me—how <laughs> messy life is, how messy life is, and how things can be, you know, uh, unresolved, sometimes forever. Now, I've mentioned this a few times before, but I grew up with a, a raft of alcoholics and addicts mm-hmm. in my family. And do you know what's resolved about it? They're funerals. That's it. And so it is really disingenuous to tell me one thing and show me another thing i don't care for that i maybe he's saying life is messy but my art is tidy pretty much yeah i, I think about this film in the hands of walking trier there you go and what would that look like yeah and there would be a lot of unresolved stuff yeah as the final credits rolled so i'm just very annoyed when I see a film that gives me very difficult, you know, emotional stuff to process and then does all the processing for me so that I can go home feeling like clean again. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's not, that's not good. I would like uh, a little more mess. Leave the mess on the floor. Yeah, Send me home. But Florence Pugh's good. She is. Morgan Freeman's good. Yep. The performances are good. Yeah. And there are some genuine, uh, uh, emotionally affecting moments within the this film that wraps itself up too well. Yes. And a fun little Jackie Hoffman cameo. It's a great little Jackie Hoffman cameo. And if you see the trailer... You pretty much you get it. the entirety of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I'm not joking. Yeah, that's her one. She's like four lines of dialogue. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, go see it if you want. If addiction, you know, is a, is subject matter that you're uh, interested in, you know, being completest about in your film going experience. Otherwise, eh. Finally. This is the segment that we're now calling Dave White is late. Yes. But not so late that this film is out of theaters. Okay. We just looked it up today and it's still playing hmm. in Los Angeles. Which means that it's probably still making its way around to art houses yeah. in uh, other cities in the country. It's Sony Classics. Sony Pictures Classics. Uh, the film is called Return to Soul. Uh, is it the first feature from Davey Hsu? Uh I think it might be
1: Chow, actually. Chow? Uh, let's see. It is... No, it is not. He directed a film called uh, Diamond Island in 2016. But I have not and, seen that.
0: Uh, Golden Slumbers in 2011. Okay, uh, so anyway it's his third film then uh, it stars a French uh, artist but it's her first film
1: yeah uh, her name is Park Jimin. it's interesting that you mention Wakim Trier because yeah, this debut performance reminded me so much of the one in Worst Person Worst in the World Worst Person in the World yeah
0: for sure so she is a, a Korean born French woman in her mid-twenties who seemingly almost on a whim travels to South Korea. She had a flight going somewhere else that gets canceled
1: and she just decides to go to Seoul where she knows no one but uh, was born and wants to see if she can track that information about her birth uh, parents. Although, as we see, even when she says she wants to do this, Sometimes she decides, do
0: I want maybe to do not? This? I don't know. Do I actually care? Yeah. yeah. Um so the adoption agency locates them. She meets them. And everyone has different ways of feeling and thinking and talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> From the the grandmother, who is very, you know, apologetic. Please don't judge us. We thought we were doing what was best for you. Her father, who is Incredibly awkward with her. Uh, doesn't know how to talk to her. She doesn't know how to
1: talk to him either. She's very torn between the idea of being Korean and being French. Yes. And, you know, like at the beginning of the movie, she kind of, she starts hanging out with the, like the woman who is the clerk at the hotel where she's staying. Yeah. And is very kind of haughty about her kind of Western sensibilities. And yes. Attitudes about things. But then she also... Stays in Seoul for a long time, right. so clearly she is in some way responding to like being around, you know, her people and being in in her homeland, even if it's not anywhere she's ever lived before.
0: Right. So then the film spans eight years of her life. Yeah, which you're not expecting. No. <laughs> and so between the ages of you know mid twenties to early thirties. She does the thing that people do all the way through their late extended adolescence into their 20s, and that's sort of try on identities. Yeah. At one point, she's an arms dealer. (laughs) (laughs) She is. (laughs) And a good one, apparently. (laughs) What I love so much about this film, not just the fact that it's gorgeous uh, to look at and... It has this this very youthful, energetic style, uh, without being ostentatious or or, or you know obnoxious yeah. about it. Um, it sidesteps a lot of cliches about what it means to be adopted and what it means to grow up in a place that that you feel sort of. Like you're the only one there. Um, It doesn't connect easy dots. No. It doesn't say, she's this way because this happened. Right. You know, it doesn't say adoption and that people who are adopted always feel like this. You know, there's always this trauma inside of you. There's always this, this, this hole that, that, that can't be filled. You don't understand why you long for a thing you've never had. Like, the film is barely interested in that kind of stuff it is much france more, is like this but korea is right. like this. it's much more interested in her as a character in her her as a character and her sense of dislocation yeah that comes from a variety of sources and reasons um, and it has that that energy of being in your 20s and feeling restless and Not knowing what you want to do, not knowing exactly who you are yet, uh, sort of finding your way into adulthood. You see her consider the other paths that her life could have taken had she not been moved to another place as a, as an infant, but she isn't ruled by it. Like she's not obsessed with it, uh. Her biological family, on the other hand, are a little obsessed with it. Yeah. Uh, so she's not easily defined uh, as a character or by any of the circumstances surrounding her character. You feel the occasional pull of, you know, well, what if not that, right? but something else? How would I have been different? And do I need to dwell on it for very long? Maybe not. <laughs> I have guns to sell to people. <laughs> Um, you know, what, uh, this is something I wrote down in my notes. Would I have become the name they gave me? Mm. Because her, her Korean name translated means docile and lovely. She doesn't have a lot of interest in being docile. <laughs> e- docile. Well, yeah. And she has no, she's not going to be docile no. <laughs> for anyone. Um, yeah, I love you want to talk about something that's unresolved? Here's the movie that's unresolved. Oh yeah. <laughs> Polar opposite of a good person. You don't know what's going to happen to her. You know, 10 years from now there could be another film about this character and what became of her. Yeah. I would watch it. Yeah. Right away. This is a very cool movie. Uh it's 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 it is beautifully made about about human experience that doesn't get represented often enough if I had
1: you know if I were to, to get to pick an outlier best actress nomination for last year yeah for sure rather than Andrea Riceboro it would have been Park Jimin. yeah yeah yeah
0: fully so anyway those are your films yes John Wick 4 good person Tori and Lokita Return to Soul we have one more letter yes we will read now. It is from Michael. Michael wants to be knifed. Oh, it's been a while. And the category is film soundtracks.
1: So we're not knifing the movie. We're nope. knifing
0: the soundtrack. We're knifing the soundtrack. The category is... Yes. Yeah. Okay. You ready? Shoot. Royal Tenenbaums.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yes. For me, um, it's all about Nico. A soundtrack can exist independently of the film. Of course. And a, a, one that I want to listen to just by itself. I'm not a person who listens to lots of film scores mm. without the film itself. But when a, when, when a film uses uh, uh, song. Yes. What the kids now all call needle drops. (laughs) When the film uses songs and I can no longer hear the song without thinking of that scene in the movie. Sure. Even though I knew the song well before the movie showed up. That is effective use. Yeah. So, as you just said, you spoiled it. Nico, (laughs) when you see my favorite civil suit witness, Walking toward the camera slowly, to Nico singing these days. You feel it, and you don't know why. Uh,
1: Wes Anderson is really good at this. Yeah, because I I think I am more inclined toward the Rushmore soundtrack than the Royal Tenenbaums one, but it's the same thing. Like you said, I can't hear uh, the faces. Turns
0: out that Rushmore is the next in entry. Oh, well then. And the I can't. Washmore hear... the soundtrack C D yes. is far more in rotation in this house yes. than Royal Tenonball.
1: Yeah. I can't hear ooh la la without thinking of, right. you know, Max Fisher dancing in
0: slow motion. As a coherent like body of music, the Washmore yeah. soundtrack is I think is is a stronger is strong collection. collection. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Amelie. Gosh, I don't honestly, remember all I, think, all I think about is, you know Accordion, yeah, <laughs> that's, I, I, really, that's I, all I think about, and it's lovely. It, yeah. it perfectly suits the the old timiness of Amelie. Yeah, the quaintness
1: of it. Yeah, I, I I'll say yes, even though I don't really remember the specifics of it.
0: Uh, the Untouchables.
1: Oh, that's
0: a score. Yeah, it really. That is. is
1: that's uh that's um the great Ennio Morricone.
0: You want historic
1: You want heroic sweep?
0: Right, that's a good one. 24 hour party people <laughs> now, this is well that's you're just you're just I mean, you're just flattering me right now <laughs> also
1: that's what they couldn't have picked anything else for that movie how does it feel
0: to treat me like you do
1: because you know that's that that takes diegetic a whole into a whole new level yeah it's a movie about a record label
0: yeah uh until the end of the world oh yes which i put on an lkrx just last week yes uh
1: I was obsessed with that soundtrack when it yeah. came out. I just bought the vinyl a couple years ago. Uh,
0: Amadeus? Again, <laughs> as, you, with 20, mean, as with 24-hour <laughs> party people, what else were you going to use? Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Oh, come on now. Well, You don't have to like the movie. The songs are impeccable. I, but that, here's the thing. Unimpeachable. was really the word. The Pulp
1: Fiction soundtrack was to the 90s what the Big Chill soundtrack was Mm to the 80s Mm -hmm. in terms of like, yes, all well selected. I never want to hear it again. All right,
0: you don't want to hear Dusty Springfield (laughs) again. It's not that. No, I'm just saying. What are you saying, Alonzo?
1: Okay. I'm you, talking about this specific curated collection of oh, songs. Oh, you don't want to hear that in that order on that compact yes. disc. Yes. I don't want to hear The Big Chill anymore. I don't want to hear Pulp Fiction anymore. Right. But I will grant, yes, it is. It was all well chosen. And Blade Runner. Oh, yeah.
0: It was great. Uh, Michael, your soundtracks are 100% knife. Thank you for the letter.
1: Somebody who was talking recently about how they thought Vangelis was a band and were shocked to discover that it was a person. Mr. Vangelis.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Bill Vangelis. <laughs> no, like <laughs> Yorgos or something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Is that it? Are we done? That's it. We're done. Golly. All right. Well, listen, thanks for listening, everybody. Again, Kristen Lopez's book, But Have You Read the Book? 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films is now available wherever books are sold. And uh, thank you again, Kristen, for coming on the show. It was lovely to have you. Please check out the other programs that uh, I'm on, including uh, Breakfast All Day, which you can catch on YouTube or on your favorite podcatcher, Deck the Hallmark, and Maximum Film, And if you listen to our most recent Maximum film, you'll get a little bonus named Dave White who came on to talk about Destroy All Monsters. So if you enjoy this program, that's an episode you'll like. And we talk about a movie that isn't a total bummer or tied into something really depressing. So, you know, maybe that'll be a nice palliative after this episode. Um, You can uh, subscribe to the show for free at Apple Podcasts. If you leave us a five-star review there, we will read it on the show. You can also leave us positive feedback in the many places that we stream, including uh, Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, uh, Google Play, Cashbox, uh, Pod... Cashbox? No. Something box. I forget. Podbean, uh, thelounge.com, Stitcher Radio, all those places. Thank you, Blue, for our wonderful theme music. Go see what he's up to at bluebleu.bandcamp.com follow us on the social media at linoleumcast and drop us a line at linoleumpodcast at gmail.com we thank you so much for listening we'll be back next time with more until then
0: goodbye